Welcome to the Young African MBA Membership Spotlight. In this series, we'll be interviewing young members that are doing impactful work within different sectors across the African continent. We begin with a focus on entrepreneurship. Over the next few months, we'll be speaking to entrepreneurs across different industries and learning about their entrepreneurship journey, as well as practical insights into how to start, scale, and grow a business in Africa. We hope you find their stories inspiring and their advice helpful. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Pardon is here. Hey, Pardon. How are you doing? Hey, it's on my arm, Good. <laughs> so thank you so much, Pardon, for taking some time to talk with Yam today. Uh, we're really excited to learn more about your journey as an entrepreneur, as an investor in startups and in, in entrepreneurs as well. Um, before we begin, just a little bit of background on myself. So I'm originally from Nigeria. I studied economics and finance at Drexel University here in the United States. And I currently work for a company called Investors that works to guide sort of global capital to African tech entrepreneurs. Hey, you're fading in and out a little bit. Okay. Uh, give me one second. Let me try something. Okay. Hello? Yep. Hi, is this better? Yes, yes. So you were just yes. fading you're just fading in and out a little bit as you were going through the discussion. Yeah. Sorry, say that again? Oh now, now it's better. I was just saying before you were fading in and out a little bit when you were going through the description. Oh, gotcha. No worries. I took out my headset, so I think it should be hopefully better now. Okay, sounds good. Yes, but I was saying um, I'm originally from Nigeria, and I studied economics and finance at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I currently work at Ingressive, a company that helps to guide global capital to African tech startups. And I've also been working with YAM on the Entrepreneur Spotlight and talking to entrepreneurs working in Africa and sort of learning about their journey and hopefully providing insights for people looking to follow a similar path. So thank yeah. you so much for well, taking some time. So you work, with, uh, you work with Maya, is it? Yes, I do. I work with Maya. Oh, okay. Small world, yes. but anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, Very I work small. with Maya closely. Um, but yes, so thanks for taking some time to talk with Yam. And why don't we sort of start at the early stages of your journey at the very beginning? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? What was growing up like? Uh, yeah, sure. So I grew up in Zimbabwe um, in a small, small-ish town called uh, Bulawayo. Uh, lots of five kids. Um, True loving parents, you know the whole works. Um, <laughs> earliest, uh, earliest memories. I, I don't know. I guess just really being around family and being around um, siblings. I had four siblings, so you know a bit of a small army. Um, yeah. I looked out to them. I admired them. I fought them. You know all the things that kids <laughs> do. But it's, I think it's worked out. We, we're excellent made bunch now. So um, I mean that's that's a little bit. I don't know if, if you want me to cover other angles. So do they call you the Don or? (laughs) 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 
Vaikka kotiettomia. No, well, they called me, so they called me pardon. So the name John actually came up. Um, so I did two years of high school. I did the International Baccalaureate um, at one of the United World Colleges in the UK. Um, and it was the first time that I was living in an Anglophone country, like an all-out Anglophone country. So mm-hmm. people would meet me and say, what's your name? I'll say, pardon. Then they thought I was saying, I beg your pardon. <laughs> what's the name pardon what's the name pardon at some point I got really frustrated so I decided to, to just go with Don and then in college my friend started calling me D Don so it kind of stuck that way that's actually a funny story how long did it take before you decided to just go with Don <laughs> not very long actually I was there I was probably on, on campus it was like a boarding school type setting uh on campus for maybe a month or so, and I was just like, oh, my God, I can't keep introducing myself 50 times to everybody. So uh, it seemed to make sense to go with uh, to go with Don. And it's actually been a pretty good icebreaker. Um, mm, I'll tell I you, a, a, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in college, I had an interview with uh, McKinsey, actually, Um and so clearly the guy who was interviewing me he had not actually really read the resume or internalized who I was. So he comes out to the lobby where we were all waiting. Mm-hmm. Um and looks and you know, looking at my resume and he says, Uh, pardon? Pard pardon? I'm like, Oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, it's me. So then I walk up to the guy and he's like, Oh, how do you say your name? I'm like, Oh, you can just call me Don. Um, and I say to him, you know, there's a story to that. So I tell him the story, and he's on the floor laughing right before the interview starts. <laughs> he's crying. Then, you know, these career services rooms are these tiny, tiny little rooms, right, where there's not any space. So mm-hmm. we are about halfway in the interview. I remember it was a case about the trucking industry. Um, so halfway into the interview, and I accidentally stretched my leg and stepped on him. And then, of course, I say, I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was the slightest twinkle in his eye, right? But he had to be professional, so he sort of just brushes it off. But I noticed it, so I was like, uh, I beg your pardon, which is, of course, my name. And then he was allowed for like three minutes again in the interview. Uh, And the interview went well. I got the next round, so, you know, whatever it works. The name has its first. That's right. I I can give you my parents' phone number if you want the story behind it. Did they ever tell you the story or did they not pass it down? Say that again? Did they ever tell you the story behind it or did they not pass it down? Oh, no, they have, but I I think it'll be better for anyone who wants to know the story to call them directly. (laughs) That was my (laughs) point (laughs) over. Okay. Yeah. Maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, maybe another time. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about yeah. What motivated you to be a part of Young African MBAs, and how has the organization been valued to you? You know, a lot of a lot of friends. So, A, I admit to not being remotely as active as I need to be uh, in Young African MBAs. Um, and I think the, the, the appeal, with all, with all that said, the appeal is just the, there's a lot of friends from college and business school who are a part of YAM. Um, and mm-hmm. 
when when you are at a YAM event or whatnot, there's this sense of being around, you know, being in the company of good people that you know, you know, shared worldviews, um, shared concerns in terms of things that you spend the time thinking about uh, from a career standpoint, mm-hmm. right? So what do I do with this education being a young African uh, person? What do I do with this education? How do I take it and create something meaningful, right? So there's really this sense of shared experiences and being kindred spirits. Um, and I think that that sense of connectedness and sharing your journey with other people is is really important to to me. And I think uh, Yam is is a, a place where you have that right. And, and then in addition, there's you know there's all the lineup of um, events around conferences or helping conferences, career related programming and so forth. But I think for me the biggest pop is. Um, just knowing that there are a lot of people who have shared experiences, shared aspirations, shared worldviews, um, you know, being in the same boat with other people and being able to lean on, lean on them for support and so forth. So all that, all that really is up. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm, of course, I'm probably biased, but I definitely agree. And I think Tomira will as well. So zooming in on CRA Ventures, you started the company, I believe, around 2015. Can you describe that the company to Yam in your own words? Yeah, yeah. Um, so CRA Venture Capital is a VC shop uh, that invests in uh, partners with visionary entrepreneurs in tech-enabled startup companies in Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is, I know that's a mouthful, but... Some of the key things are that it's, it's tech-enabled companies that we're focused on, and we come in fairly early. Uh, we're typically among the earliest rounds of institutional capital, so in the, the seed round or a Series A type round. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we, we we're sort of carving out a niche for ourselves, and you know I think if there's some traction is in that, in that capacity uh, of being a go-to partner for two groups of people, entrepreneurs in Africa that are building. This category defining businesses, right? Whose ambition and potential really goes well beyond a specific locale, right? Um, so someone who's based in Lagos or Nairobi or Johannesburg or wherever, who's building a business whose aspirations are really pan-African, if not mm-hmm. global. And a lot of those folks often need, uh, global access. So access to not only people in other markets within Africa, but people all over the world more broadly. Um, and uh, not only access to the people, but also access to capital in order for them to thrive. Right? So that's one bucket of entrepreneurs that we. That's one bucket of entrepreneurs that we're really partial to. And then the other, the other angle is we're. I think we're a go-to partner to international entrepreneurs, so people that are coming from outside of Africa, from the United mm-hmm. States, from Europe, from Asia, and so forth, who are looking to build businesses in Africa, or building businesses that have a very strong Africa component to them. And are looking for you know intelligent capital that has had some experience investing in the region that can help them navigate the the local landscape. I'll say that that's kind of how we are we are best positioned. Uh, and then an important part to this is that you know being entrepreneurs ourselves, you know we are we're an independent entity. Uh, we have a deep understanding of the labors of what it takes to build a business, how hard it is to raise capital, how hard it is to to have all your ducks in a row and have something that works. 
So mm-hmm. that means that we, you know, we bring a lot of respect and empathy, I think, to the process of how we interact with entrepreneurs. Um, sorry, give me one quick second. No worries. Hello. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, we, we are, um, we are very respectful and empathetic to other, to entrepreneurs because we sort of see the process that they are going through and we see the processes that we have gone through, right? And we, we empathize with that. I think there's a difference sometimes between how investors will not build a business, but have just come in as money managers, how they relate to entrepreneurs. And we, that's something that we try to be really thoughtful about. Um, just a little more. So the name itself, CRE, abbreviates three things, capital, this is C, which makes sense because entrepreneurs need capital to build what they're building. R is for relationships. Um, and we have deep relationships with entrepreneurs, investors, and mm-hmm. other people in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in a wide range of places, right? Not only in African locales like Nairobi, Lagos, Jobbik, and so forth, but also in places like Silicon Valley, uh, Colorado, New York, Boston, London, Berlin, Singapore, Mumbai, Bangalore, you know, really across the globe. Uh, and those relationships we find are really meaningful for for business development when companies are now raising larger rounds of capital and they need access to pools of capital that may come from wherever, um, for linking our entrepreneurs to advisors, to board members, to mentors, um, and so, and being able to bring the institutional memory and experience of other ecosystems to bear in any interaction that we have with the company, right? So that's the R, which is around relationships. Then the, the E is around experience. Um, and our thinking there is, you know, between uh, this fund and the companies we've made, the companies we've invested in and the fund, um, in other prior experience, you know, we've seen a lot of permutations and combinations of the things that entrepreneurs need to think about, right? Um, and oftentimes, when you are talking to a, a potential investee, when they tell the story, right, you can see echoes and shadows of other stories that you've seen, and you're able to bring some of that experience to things that are fairly touched on, like how should you be thinking about your term sheet, your shareholders agreements, the composition of your board, your sales and marketing strategy, mm-hmm. your next capital raise, and so forth. Um, and then also just beyond venture investing in Africa itself, you know, I, I worked previously in consulting, in, in, in growth equity, private equity, in a range of special situations, investing type situations. I think um, there, there's an action which says you pay your lawyer, your really expensive lawyer, you pay them $1,000 an hour, not because the work they did in one hour is worth $1,000, but because of the 20 years of experience that they're bringing to the table mm. in that one hour. And I think, you know, there's a version of that which which we think we bring to the table and entrepreneurs really value that. So that's a little bit about who CRE Venture Capital is and how we think about what we have to offer to entrepreneurs. And again, you know, that very framing is entrepreneur-facing. Because mm-hmm. we think, at the end of the day, we are in the business of working with entrepreneurs to help them build uh, things that will last forever. Yeah. Okay. Great. Interesting, okay. Pardon. So you you actually just gave that eloquent uh, dissertation, if you will, and you totally missed uh, the fact that you were once 
interested in, in, in working in a sector that I'm very passionate about. I take great offense to that, which is the power sector. So I guess my, my question would be, why, why did you leave this, uh, you know, world of power and go into the very unsexy world of tech entrepreneurship? That's why I'm Why would anyone do such a thing? Right? <laughs> uh, I, I think, A, um, there is still ways of getting exposure to power from within the venture world, right? Um, there are some very famous power-oriented companies out there. Uh, probably one of the most well-known right now from East Africa is Mkopa, which is, at the end of the day, it's solving a power-related issue, but as a technology-enabled uh, company, right? And there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of work and thinking that has gone into distributed uh, energy solutions, which don't need, you know, like large 1,000 megawatt project financing, project financed um, power plants, you know, that, which are trying to go away from that model in terms of solving the immediate needs of people from an energy standpoint, right? So the, I, I guess the, the first point that I would make is that um, I don't think that I have necessarily left power as a sector entirely. I think there will be exposure, uh, and in fact, we do see a lot of deal flow that is power-related, I'll be from the, tech, from the tech world. I think the, okay. the version of power that, I, that I've left behind is the classic um, project-financed, PPA-backed, you know, 500-megawatt power plant, 1,000-megawatt power plant. Um, and I think... That's for a few reasons. One is that it's incredibly contractually heavy, right? Here you have so many contracts that come together in order to allocate risks and rewards among the different stakeholders. Um, the process of getting that done can be a very, very long process with very, very binary outcomes, right? And we've seen many, many cases of half-developed power projects all over the continent, where people have spent literally millions of dollars doing the engineering studies, the geotechnical studies, the hydrology studies, the feasibility studies, the environmental social impact assessments, and all that. Um, and then when it comes to it, they are unable to negotiate a power purchasing agreement or something falls apart in the last minute. So it felt like it was a, a place where you spent a lot of time um, trying to get so many different people around the table to agree. And then at the end of the day, the success, especially if there was a PPA component to it, the success of it was not really predicated on things that you controlled directly. Your PPA may fall through because of completely um, completely government-driven or third-party-driven sectors. And it just felt like you know, it was a lot of work with very little traction, as it were. That's one part of it. And then the other part of it was just fundamentally around the bankability of projects. Um, while there's a huge shortage of power in the region, the power consumption per, per capita in the region uh, relative to the rest of the world is around 20% of the global benchmark. That's including Africa. If you take out Africa, it's a much smaller fraction of the, of the global uh, benchmark. But with that, as it may, the number of actually bankable projects in any time period are really limited, partly because of the shortcomings of government balance sheets. So... It just feels like 
it's unclear to me that that model is the way forward for solving the power issues in Africa. I think you need a portfolio of solutions, but I don't think it's going to be monopolized by that alone. I think you have a lot of disruptive technology-enabled plays that chip away that problem and address the immediate needs of people. And those are things that we are constantly looking for as well on the venture capital side. No, I, I, I agree. I was actually just sort of pulling your legs, but I think uh, uh, that's the direction I'm actually also headed with my business, right? So I, I agree with that. Much of the solutions are actually going to come from distributed generation. Um, but you won me over when you said you're still you're still looking at power projects. I just want to make sure. <laughs> <I'm not using laughs> yes, yes, I mean definitely still looking. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot of um, different types of models from basic lighting solutions to hybrid solar systems to distributed grid types of opportunities and so forth. Uh, we're still trying to wrap our minds around. Uh, what what the best way is, or more importantly, to find the right type of investment opportunity that captures all the things that we think are important. And if and when we find that, you know, we will be sure to, I think we'll be sure to give it a really close look. And um, if all all the stars align, I think, you know, that's something we'd want to invest in for sure. Again, you already won me over. Good, good, good. Okay, so what motivated your decision to start a venture capital firm, particularly one focused on technology in Africa? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the other stuff there, um, a bunch of moving pieces to that as well. So one of the things that, and I'll try to cover a few of the points. So one of the things that I've observed in my experience working with different investment houses, if you call it that, um, was that there was a lot of capital that had gone into the medium and later stage investments in Africa. Uh, so your traditional growth equity vehicles, as well as later, not only do you have household regional names that have raised a lot of capital and are managing sizable funds, but you also have um, international players, right? The KKRs and Carlisles and TTGs now have Africa vehicles. Um, mm-hmm. And with that has come a ton of money that's focused on the growth, growth equity and above stage. Um, and what what happened simultaneously is that the early stage, right? So the, the early stage, you need your seed round, your Series A round, is generally not very well funded. If anything, we 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 think there's a huge market opening there, um, and. That was for that was very well for two reasons. One, it means you have a buyer's market as you go in, because there are more deals than there are investors in the early stage, and that is not true for the later stage where we think there are a lot more uh, investors than there are investable growth equity companies that can absorb like meaningful, meaningfully sized checks from the the funds that are doing that are in that space. Um, so, a, it's a buyer's market for us going in, and then b on the exit side, the the plethora of capital in the growth equity at our stage means we hope that the companies that we're investing in today can be the deal flow tomorrow and the day after tomorrow for the later stage investors, right? So there's a supply and demand of capital and in, in investment opportunities component to it. Um, there's another component to it, which has to do with the availability of talent. So increasingly, and I think more so, around these last four or five years than ever before, you're seeing a tremendous amount of uh, capable talent, capable from a tech standpoint and from a business standpoint, that is 
coming from three places. One is emerging within the region, right? So people went to university within the region, worked for some of the leading tech-type companies within the region and so forth. Um, then you're seeing talent that's coming from abroad. So people who grew up or were born in Africa went to study abroad, worked for the best companies that there is, you know, got the best education one could ask for, and are now going back to build operating companies in the region. And then the third bucket of talent you're seeing is just foreign talent that is seeing the African opportunity and is going for it, right? It's, it's Americans who are saying this, it's Europeans, it's Asians who are saying, hey, I see a unique opportunity and I happen to have the right skills and, you know, the right convergence of, of relationships and domain knowledge and so forth to, to go in for it. So I think more than ever before, in the last few years, you've seen a surge in talent that's mm-hmm. focused on this, on this space, right? And the talent is really important because at the end of the day, you're really investing behind people. The third component has to do with tech itself. Um, and, and tech is an, is an enabler, right? We think technology is an enabler which can be a platform across different sectors, and we find that really appealing. It allows individuals like you and I, enterprises, to do things more consistently, more efficiently, more cost-effectively, right? So quicker, faster, better type thing. Um, and what we know from history is that human beings will gravitate towards whatever takes away pain, right? We will, there was a time when light bulbs were the most radical technology you can think of, but because they were solving a very real problem, people adopted that. Um, and that, you know, that's an example that applies for all humanity, but in the case of Africa, this is not all just theory. We've seen a dramatic uptake in technology and connectivity in the last decade mm-hmm. or so. I remember growing up in Zimbabwe uh, and my family being on a very long waiting list for a landline, right? A telephone for mm-hmm. a landline for a telephone. And there was just no hope. We knew it would take 10 years before the government controlled uh, post and telecommunications company would get that figured out. And then almost out of nowhere, Econet. Um, was established and all of a sudden people were buying cell phones and we had a cell phone and we completely forgot about the land. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the story of mobile telephony penetration is one that's well understood. We all know how successful that has been mm-hmm. in terms of reaching many people. You have people who don't have running water who have mobile phones. You have people who don't have electricity mm-hmm. in their homes who have mobile phones. A lot of those people and that just gives to people, and that has not been driven by any subsidies or any sort of external support. These are people consuming this stuff in, in a private capacity in a willing, seller willing buyer type context, right? And the success has not only been from a voice standpoint, but also from a mobile broadband standpoint. Broadband connectivity has been doubling every year since 2006, and we're in the hundreds of millions of connections now. <clears throat> and that this all underpins the notion that not only has the not only is the infrastructure for technology driven anything substantially in place, there's still stuff that has to be done, but a lot of it is there and people have actually really adopted this in their private capacity and as well as free enterprises. So pulling up and looking at all these different things right here, one part the supply and demand of capital and investment opportunities. On another part you have this adoption of tech uh, and connectivity across the board. And then on the third part, you have the availability of talent in 
proportions that have never really existed in the past, right? When you put these things together, you get a pretty salient thesis for why it may be time to really earnestly think about, you know, uh, being dedicated to supporting technology-enabled ventures in the region. Um, and, and, you know, so that, that's, that's kind of the, the macro lens that suddenly I took when I was thinking about whether this made sense or not, whether this, there was really something structural and sustainable. It wasn't just, you know, a, a whim of the moment. <laughs> then personally, in terms of making the transition, um, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune of working with some with some good investment houses that cover Africa, that cover the emerging markets, doing everything from early stage stuff to quarter equity buyouts, listed securities, project finance, and so forth. And I think with that work experience, I picked up certain things that are important to setting up an investment shop. Um, and then also equally for treaters was uh, finding my business partner. Uh, my, my partner, Pulit, set up an, an angel network a couple of years earlier that I was involved with as a board member. And so when when all this came together and he and I sat together and said, hey, why don't we set up a, a VC fund from the ground up? You know, it, it seemed to all make sense. And I think uh, that's, that's sort of the, the mechanics of how it came together. Okay, and so in terms of thinking about the actual capital, so how did you source limited partners and capital to fund CRE? Was this from the initial angel network? Um, how was the process for you in terms of forming that initial capital base to then go ahead and source deal opportunities to invest in? Yeah, the angel network was really a proof of concept type thing, so it wasn't the same scale or the same amount of uh, stuff that needed to happen, right? They setting up a, a, an investment fund um, that's compliant with all the requirements when you do so in, with the U.S. domicile and so forth. You know, it's fairly involved. And also, we wanted something that was bigger and would allow us to be involved in more things and write slightly bigger checks and so forth. So there was some benefit from having done the annual network, but on, on the limited partner side, a lot of it was really a whole new type of approach to raising capital. Um, and, you know, everything in venture capital is about people. You you need people to find deal flow. You need people to invest alongside. You need people to work with. And the same applies to raising capital. So we leaned into the very vast network of people that we had gone to school with, that we'd worked with, or <clears throat> otherwise knew from our professional and personal circles. Um, we We approached people that you know, knew us personally and were willing to vouch for us or, or make a bet behind us. Uh, we approached people who had some ties to invest in broadly. So some are investors in the listed market, some are venture capital investors and so forth. We approached people who had some ties to entrepreneurship or had experience with, with Africa as a region, as, as a place of birth or with other emerging markets and people who knew and appreciate the sort of the value and power of what technology companies can do. Um, so, you know, there was all those different lenses. I think that's where we, we found success. We were not a very good fit for a very long list of people. Um, as you can imagine, not everybody would, not everybody understands the African opportunity at all let alone when you go into mm-hmm. something as specific as what we are doing. So, you know, there were a lot of no's along the way. Um, 
But the ones who did see the world the way that we do really stepped up and threw their weight behind us. And you know, we're very thankful to to have those people who gave us a lot of their confidence. So it ended up being, you know, friends. It ended up being family offices. It ended up being um, um, individuals who have some investing experience themselves and so forth, yeah. Okay, okay. And you mentioned earlier as well the difficulty that African entrepreneurs have in raising capital, particularly with seed or early-stage capital. What advice do you have for African entrepreneurs that are working on ideas and need sort of that early-stage capital to move forward? What advice do you have from them on how to raise funding? Yeah, you know, I think it depends on where you are in this cycle of raising capital. There's very many different types of capital that you need to raise at different stages of the mm-hmm. of the company. When it's really just an idea that is sort of fresh out of the frying pan, um, a lot of that is probably going to need to be friends, you know, your personal friends, yeah. your family members, people who know you, who won't really ask many questions. It will just give you, say, okay, go do what you need to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes you can reach out to... Uh, people that you went to school with or people that taught you something, former bosses and so forth, right? people who, who would vouch for you or have a lot of confidence uh, on you regardless of what you're doing. I think when you when you begin to approach institutional investors, uh, the bar changes dramatically. People are no longer putting capital behind you because they like your shoes or they like your smile or because you're their cousin. Uh, they're now putting capital behind you because they believe you're going to, what you're doing makes a lot of sense. You're the right person to do it. You have advantages over your competitors, you know, all the usual things we look for. Um, mm-hmm. And you're going to be the best at compounding capital or creating value in that capacity. Right. And I think for when you approach the seed investors, uh, the advice that I would have really becomes institutional investors. The advice that I would have really goes before you start raising, during the raise, and well after the raise, which is just be the best at what you do. Right. So know your stuff mm-hmm. the best way anyone could ever know it. Build your stuff the best way anyone could ever build it. You know, give people the best product or service or whatnot. I think we can tell almost immediately when you have a conversation with them. Within the first three minutes or so, you can tell the caliber of the entrepreneur who's in front of you by how they describe what they're doing and how well they know it, how well they understand it, right? Um, so I think that's what I'll say. If, if it's really, really early on, you're sort of just on the idea step, um, probably mostly reach out to friends and family and, you know, former faculty members and people that that like you in general. When you begin to approach institutional investors, you really need to have your your ducks in order, um, and there are many people who've done this whom you should reach out to say, hey, help me think about what to do. Tell me whom I should be talking to. What's their style? What's the best material to present in front of them? What are the questions I should anticipate and so forth? And talking about reaching out so, to institutions. So, sorry, sorry, sorry ahead, before we move on from there. So I guess where do you think the gap – so let's forget the – very early stage, you know, it's just an idea mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Where do you think people typically fail in terms of fundraising? Because I think some of them do maybe have their ducks in a row. Uh, but, you know, like more tactically, uh, where do you think people make the most mistakes or where do you think where do you think people fail? Uh, and that could be just based on anecdotes or even your personal experiences uh, 
in dealing with their potential investees. Yeah, yeah. Where do people fail the most? Um, well, so maybe what I can tell you is what we look for, right? And I can give you a very brief assessment of what we tend to find, right? So uh, the first and most important part is the team that's executing on the idea. Uh, the idea itself is not very valuable because um, you see a, a thousand ideas a month. Uh, but what, what survives is that which is being driven by a team that is uniquely positioned. Um, the Some of the issues you find with teams, either A, sometimes there is no team. There is the Lone Ranger CEO who believes they will do everything. Um, that person is a myth. They don't exist. Um, virtually all companies I know of, when you really look beneath the hood, despite what the media may have you believe, have been built by teams, right? Uh, where there's a team of people that are working together. There's someone who's in a CTO capacity, a chief product officer, a chief marketing officer, chief executive officer, chief financial officer. It doesn't have to be all those heads covered at any one time, but you tend to need to have more than one person. Very rarely have, very rarely have I seen, if at all, really a, a founder who might say single-handedly this person will get the job done, right? So I think um, finding the right team tends to be off the bat where a lot of people just don't make the cut. Um, and then within that team itself, right, so you really need to demonstrate domain expertise, right? You really need to demonstrate that you know the sector that you're going after, the country that you're going after, and you know the business itself. One of my biggest disappointments is when I ask a question which you know, I looked at a teaser or a deck, and in the first five minutes, I came up with that question, and it's a fairly important business question, but an entrepreneur who purports to be building a business around this concept has never thought about that question. That's always a big disappointment. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just the color of the team, being prepared and being well-balanced and well-rounded as a team tends to be really important. The, the next part is understanding the market opportunity. Very recently, I was on a call with a seemingly very capable CEO who seems to be really good with people, but I asked him a very simple question, which was around what is the size of the opportunity? Now, you know, when I ask that question, I don't expect them to have the answer to three decimal places. What I expect is to hear a view on how the team or the company thinks about whom out there they are targeting, right, and how they, how they try to understand how big that opportunity is. And, you know, they really, really fell on their face. They seem to have everything else figured out, but just that one thing. And that's a big concern for us because um, at the end of the day, the business is you selling a product into a market. And to figure out how big the business may become, we need to know how big the market is. And if the CEO doesn't quite have a good grasp of that, you, you have a problem. The third thing tends to be product and market fit. So... People will come up with really good ideas, which sometimes they're really good ideas, but they're not a good fit because consumers don't behave that way. Classic example is um, when um, I think it was GM that produced the Chevy Volt, right? The first Chevy Volt was um, in the 90s, right? And no one was ready to consume an electric vehicle at that time. So the idea wasn't a bad idea. It was a good idea, and what's happening right now validates that. 
but it was an idea that was well, well, well ahead of its time. So that's an example of a situation where a team may have a good idea, but it's an idea that people just cycle, the psychographics of the consumer behavior are not there yet. And so, you know, that's an idea that doesn't take off. Sometimes you have a great idea, but it requires a tremendous amount of supply chain and other infrastructure around it that um, may not exist. So you could have, for instance, a solar storage company, something, something, that says, oh, you know, I'm going to have the most high-end lithium-ion batteries be part of the solution of what we're doing in this country, say, in East Africa. And then, you know, you say, okay, what's the supply chain of lithium-ion batteries like in that part of the world? And, you know, it's virtually inexistent, right? So even though the product is a good idea, the amount of stuff that you need to get right for you to be able to operationalize that it just doesn't exist yet, right? And we prefer to make bets on things that a company can control or can influence meaningfully than on betting that the, the an additional billion dollars of infrastructure will emerge overnight to substantiate the idea, right? And then there's also some other examples where the product is not a bad idea. The team is pretty good, uh, but the product market fit just isn't there because, you know, that's not where people are. That's not how people consume stuff. So those are some of the three areas where things tend to fall apart. Uh, does that does that switch your question, Tomio? <laughs> so you, you've talked about the importance of having a solid team. So I want to get your thoughts on team building as well. So firstly, how did you approach growing a team at CRE? And then more largely, when you talk about looking at teams that come in this presentation, what do you look for? What's your advice on building a solid team? Yeah, yeah. So for for venture capital, as you may know already, um, you don't need a very big team, right? It's a very mm-hmm. top-heavy business model. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, I mean, we know funds that are managing not of a billion dollars and it's you know, four partners and maybe two analysts, and that's really the core team. Um, So for us, from a team standpoint, it's just myself and my partner, Um, and that's not unusual for for where we are in the cycle of, you know, what we're doing. Um, But but, the idea will be to extend the team as, you know, as and when we raise a a bigger fund in the future and we need more people just to to manage the additional volume of work. is for the operating companies that we back, how do you think about building a team? I think, you know, you build a team to the needs of the business, right? I, I think one should not go out there to build a team for the sake of building a team. Um, and one should not deny the company the team that it needs when it's clear that the company needs more people than there is at, mm-hmm. at a given moment. So at the end of the day, how you build a team should really be driven by what the needs of the business are. Um, and early on, it's a really tough balancing act because there's a lot that needs to be done and mm-hmm. there's a very lean operating budget, right? So sure. the earlier days are probably when you need a lot of hands on deck, but you just don't have the, the, the P&L to do that. So you, you need to be able to attract good talent especially among the more senior managers in the C-suite, you want to be able to attract good talent. Good talent, we found, requires two things. Either A, you have to be willing to pay well in order to attract people from the other options that they have or that they are plugged into. Um, Or B, you have to have a very, very compelling story 
of what the vision of the business is, right? So, okay, I get it. You won't pay me how much, you know, my former employer was paying me, but I can see the vision that you're pitching me, and I can see that if we build this company and it starts successful, this will be worth my while, right? So I think it's mm-hmm. either have a, a good hiring budget or have a very good vision and ability to sell that vision and attract talent. You run into trouble when you have neither of those um, because then, A, the talent that you need is fairly expensive. You don't have the money, and then if you're not going to give the money, they want to know that they're going to be part of something worthwhile and big, and it's worth the risk they're taking. And if you don't have that either, you know, you're most likely not going to to do very well because you're unable to fill the needs of the company. Yeah. So one one thing you 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 I guess that you didn't mention necessarily was uh, equity offerings. So you know I I, I just want to yeah. see how that fits into the way you're thinking about uh, a compensation and b actually selling the business. Uh, you mean how the companies we're working with, how they think about those issues? Well, no. So you were well, yeah. I mean, I guess how they think about it, but how you view. Um, that team building. Uh, so you talked about being able to pay something that's worthwhile. You can give that payment in the form of equity. But I imagine right, that's right. tied into the vision, into the vision that you're selling. Right, to. right, right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I didn't, I guess I didn't go into the specifics of, you know, options and equity and all that stuff. But that 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 dovetails from the point around the vision, right? So either you pay someone very close to parity with the market rate for what they are capable of. So if they're this many years out of school and they've done such and such a job, what's a fair wage for them? Or if you're not doing that, you you know you may not afford to, or you may not have as much cash to pay out as uh, cash compensation. But then you have to give them not only not only do you have to sell the vision, but you have to be willing to give them part of the business, right? Some mm-hmm. some uh, equity consideration or long-term incentive compensation of some sort that aligns their efforts with where you see the business going. Right, and the, the characters around these are either equity awards or or stock options. Um, now, sometimes, depending on the sophistication of the person in question, sometimes people may not necessarily know what a stock option is. Um, typically, that's with your more junior hires, and so you have to have some educational discussion around that. Uh, but with your more senior hires, if you're building, again, if you're building your C-suite, generally they should have some idea what it is. If they don't, then I think you have other things to worry about. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I yeah, and I think that's a very good point too is thinking about how to compensate them in terms of equity if you don't have the cash, especially at the earlier stages like to compensate for talent. Um right. Yeah, but also looking at uh, sort of the VC industry more broadly, what are some of the challenges you face that are unique to starting a VC firm that's focused specifically on African companies? Yeah, the biggest challenge was with the initial setup, like finding limited partners who would actually write you a check and did not think you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think, the perception of risk associated with Africa generally is way out of whack with the reality of the matter. Um, so when you say 
early, when you say Africa, and then you add to that early stage, and you add to that technology, um, most people run for deals, right? They're just like, I, I can't handle this. I, I don't know how to think about this. Um, and so there was a lot of work around educating your investor, educating your potential investor. So they know you, they, they know your reputation, they know, you know, whatever school, company, or whatever you've worked with or, or studied from before, right? So they, they know you're clearly not completely out of your mind, um, but you have to bring them along in saying it is not a ridiculous idea to start thinking about this in Africa. Mm-hmm. There was a time way, way back in the day when venture capital as an asset class was brand new in the United States, right? And the idea that you'd have a fund whose sole job is to back startups was well, equally crazy. Like, who, who does that? Are you people out of your mind? But it's played out for longer here. So the good fortune that we have with Africa is that um, we're able to draw lessons from different ecosystems, right? We're able to say, hey, look, this is what happened in the U.S. well back when in the 60s and 70s. Here's what, here's what happened in Europe a little later. Here's what's happened in, in Southeast Asia, South Asia and China in the in the last decade and a half or so, right? So look at how these things have evolved. Look at the traction that's, that's happened. And actually look at some of the, the earlier companies in the region that have become well-known names. Uh, these people need capital. And so, you know, the process of educating and evangelizing the concept itself is probably the hardest part. Um, but again, you know, having invested across the globe over... Uh, over the years since since I left college, I think the irony is that the companies that we invest in ultimately are generally a lot more de-risked than the companies that your your median U.S. venture capital firm invests in, uh, which is, you know, at the same time, it's, it's hilarious and it's really ironic, right? Because your median U.S. VC principal would think you're crazy if you said I'm investing in a technical business in Africa. But when you actually do pound for pound a comparison of how much they are paying for a certain caliber of talent and how much, how much, you know, we have to pay to, to get an equity stake in a similar type talent, we are getting, you know, more de-risk companies at better valuations, right? So, um, again, the hard work is in communicating this. I'll, I'll tell you one example which I hope you find, you find it funny as I found it to be. I was in a meeting once with uh, some lady who did investor relations for some big investment firm. Um, and, you know, it's in one hour meeting. I'm 40 minutes in. I'm, you know, I'm saying this and saying that and saying this. Look at this. Look at technology. Look at entrepreneurs. Look at all those things. Right. And she, she's nodding her head. So I'm like, okay, we must be in the same place. Then, yeah. then about 40 minutes in, she, she says, okay, so you talk about a place like Nigeria. How much barter trade is there in this economy? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I nearly fell out of my chair. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. Did you just say barter trade is in like exchange? Like I'll give you a gold if you give me a bag of maize. I mean, I didn't say quarter million, but, but she said, yes, I mean, how much butter trade? And she had the most earnest and most serious look wow. on the sun. <laughs> and then I sort of took a relative breath to not say anything impolite. <laughs> then, then I had to say, okay, 
Nigeria is a half a trillion dollar economy, right? Virtually every household, not every, but a lot of the big, I mean, then I had to, I had to pause and say, okay, lady, just let's, let's step back and think about this, right? <laughs> but I think it underscores the point that I'm making, right? She, she's a very capable, very senior person in a very well established firm, right? So it's not like she lives under the rock or under a rock in some random place in one of the Dakotas. Um, but, you know, she lives in New York. She sees the world as you would think every one of us does. But, again, the the perception and the reality of where people think Africa is versus where it is, overcoming that was probably the hardest part of um, of getting started. True. Yeah. So assuaging those concerns with regards to the risk involved with investing in Africa. Yeah, it's about, you know, it's about... Um, Part of it is about telling specific stories, right? Let me tell you about a company that we've invested in. And when mm-hmm. you give something concrete like that, people begin to see it. And then the other part is being able to paint the macro picture, right, uh, without any specific anecdotes. So uh, if you're thinking about geopolitical risk, well, you know, let's talk about what that really looks like, right? If you're thinking about um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff is stuff like wars and famines and all that. Like, look, okay, there are places where that holds for sure, but mm-hmm. the markets, the places where the companies we are investing in operate, they are not that dramatically different from your neighborhood in Brooklyn or whatever, right? They they are like cosmopolitan urban centers where people are connected and they want to consume these things and they actually have been look at the financials or such and such a mobile network operator, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I think when you when you when you blend the storytelling of very specific case studies with some of the macro dynamics and being able to say um risk is everywhere. Um it's different mm-hmm. types of risk. There are ways of mitigating different types of risk. Here's how it's been done successfully in the past. You know, you can bring people around, um, but some people are just lost causes. Sorry, Brenda, maybe a quick follow-up to that. So there's been a lot of narratives lately about, you know, I mean, we've seen the hopeless Africa, the rising Africa, and mm-hmm. I think now people are saying, well, maybe some of those uh, times are either behind us or, you know, the middle class has been over-exaggerated. I mean, you see the like so in this particular uh, um, landscape, um, you know, how do you continue to paint a picture for some of those potential investors uh, that might now be hearing more stories that are not necessarily negative, but just more um, more uh, conservative in terms of the outlook uh, in, in mm-hmm. Africa? Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean. Um, I was particularly, I've always been particularly, I think, careful when we were out telling people about what we're doing to not get sucked into the, oh, my God, Africa Rising story or whatever the different versions of it, right? Um, and just say, okay, let's talk about specific things that are relevant to the companies that we're investing in, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there's an axiom, another something, something that I say a lot, which is we don't invest in GDP, right? We invest in companies. So... The companies, and to, to, to give you a little more meat behind that, right? So on the margin, the company, there are companies with back that clearly has a strong, uh, correlation to GDP. There's no denying that. But on average, the companies that we back really are companies that will grow either A, because there's a, there's a concept that is changing, 
transforming or disrupting the way something has been consumed traditionally. And that market penetration will play out whether GDP is growing at 10% or it's growing at 1% because you're offering something that's of a more consistent quality, that is more cost-effective, and that is more efficient, right? So people who adopt that, whether it's book time or it's bus time, if anything, hard times actually really force people to think about how they allocate their marginal dollar, right? So in a normal economy, I probably don't care. I'll send my kid to the most expensive school offering anyway. In a tough economy, I probably have to think a little more what are some ways in which I can still get my child the best education possible, albeit at a lower, at a lower price point. And I think that's, that's sort of a general case for why ed tech, I think, will will always be relevant in sub-Saharan Africa. And also, generally, I think, as you get income compression and discretionary dollars diminish, people are just a lot more shrewd about what they spend and what they don't spend on. We we prefer to invest in companies that are offering things that you fundamentally need rather than luxuries, right? So um, none of the companies we invest in, frankly, are offering luxury goods or luxury services that are targeting people that have a lot of discretionary cash. A lot of them are saying, let me, let me offer a more efficient education solution for you, a more efficient um, back-office management solution for you. So that's our software as a service companies. Let me offer you a more efficient payment approach, right? Our point-of-sale company in South Africa is way more cost-effective, offers way more cost-effective solutions for medium and large enterprises than traditional bank solutions do. You know, let me offer a more cost-effective logistics solution for you and so forth. So I think part of it is for us, a, the Africa rising narrative has never really been a core part of the thesis. The thesis is what are ways in which technology is transforming the way people do things so that it's cheaper, better, cheaper, better, faster, and more consistent. And, and in places where people will migrate in that direction, whether my economy is, you know, it, it's party time in Lagos or whether, it, you know, it's, it's, a tough day in, it's a tough day in Lagos, people will want to go in that direction for, for all these sort of structural reasons around that. So I think, A, that is always in the narrative. So when the when the market begins to change or when the overall GDP situation begins to change, yes, things are a little more gloomy. Yes, people are a little more skeptical. But you are not pitching them on, say, new housing stocks, which are almost one-to-one correlated with GDP growth, right? You are not pitching them on things that track GDP on a one-to-one basis, but pitching them on things that you seem to do well, you know, come here or high water. Um and so that, that's, that's a big part of it. And again, you know, being able to talk about specifically what we are doing in the same way that, you know, companies like, um, in the U.S., for instance, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all those companies continue to grow, even though the entire world was going to a really bad place, right? When the financial crisis came around, it didn't really stop the growth of Facebook because Facebook had tapped into something that was fundamental about human behavior and people's need to be connected. You know, the, the economy has gone up and down and up and down. And uh, say prior to the listing, it didn't really stop the growth of Square because Square was offering a better way of doing things. And I think that's the power of technology, right? Saying, let's offer you a really different way of doing things that will allow you to thrive. And that, I think, can withstand a lot of noise. Okay. Okay. I mean, I agree, but I'm also wondering, how do you think about systemic risk then? Or is that something you don't primarily consider? Because 
to some extent, the amount of sort of disposable income in the country would affect these businesses, right? So when you're evaluating opportunities, do you consider that? Is that sort of something that's at the forefront of your mind, or are you focused solely on how the company itself operates and what you think the strength of the business model is? Or how do you think about systemic risk? Do you think about the countries they're operating in, how that might affect the revenue, or what's your approach to that? I'm not sure I follow exactly what the question is. Do you mind just restating? No problem. So, so go ahead. Good. No, good. Okay, I was wondering how you think about systemic risk in terms of the risk involved in investing in a company in certain countries versus others, for example. So whether it's risk around um, foreign exchange or it's risk around policies, how do you think about that in evaluating opportunities? So I I spent a lot of time thinking about that, right? Which is how do you design a portfolio of investments that can withstand some of these, as you call them, systemic or systematic shocks, um, if and when they exist. And a part of that is just being thoughtful about the business models, right? So currency is one that you mentioned. I think it's a very specific one that can shed light on how we think about this stuff. Um, We essentially have three buckets of companies in our portfolio as relates to currency. They are companies that um, are just straight up hard currency denominated, right? So um, they bill their clients in U.S. dollars. The transactions are settled in U.S. dollars. And it's just your your only FX exposure, um, say in the case of Nigeria, your only Naira exposure is on your operating expenses. And that tends to be a favorable way to lean in terms of local currency exposure on expenses, but hard currency exposure on your revenues, right? Um, and an example of that, a very basic example of that is uh, Andela, which is which does software development uh, type work. So the contracts that Andela sells are to international corporates. We've done work for Microsoft, Google, IBM, and so forth. And those are corporates that will pay for the work done in U.S. dollars, you know, without any need to exchange the currency. Um, mm-hmm. And all the cost base for Andela is in... Naira in Nigeria and in shillings in Kenya, right? So that's 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 one that's one bucket of companies. The second bucket of companies are companies that will price their services in US dollars and have them paid in local currency equivalent. In the the bulk of Africa, this is actually not a brand new concept at all, right? Where you will say it costs you one US dollar to do blah, especially in countries that have significant commodity exposure like Nigeria. Right, which because they sell so much oil into the rest of the world, the idea of thinking about things in US dollars is not a foreign concept, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in, I mean, when you go around the continent, it's not, it's not unusual to say if you're looking for to pay for a rent for a lease agreement or rent agreement in a certain neighborhood, it'll be priced in US dollars, right? You pay whatever the local equivalent is. So a lot of the companies we've backed fall into that bracket where the price point is denominated in euros and pounds selling in U.S. dollars, and it's paid in local currency equivalent, and then that just has to be exchanged um, into the... So when there's currency depreciation, the the cost is passed on to uh, the customer, and the customer knows that when they first engage the company. Then the third market mm-hmm. is companies that have really naked local currency exposure, right? So they, they earn in local currency, and they spend in local currency, 
um, those companies in our portfolio are really, really small fraction of our exposure. So when all is considered, we, we manage the portfolio so that the forex risk um, leans more to the first two buckets than to the third bucket. So that's an example of thinking about a very specific um, aspect of risk in a specific country. Another way of approaching this, there's another company we've invested in is called Asoko Insight, which is building a corporate database of, um, in very simple terms, at the risk of butchering their narrative. They're building this huge database of companies in Africa, essentially, which is going to be very valuable for investors, for corporates, and whatnot that are trying to do business in the region. And they say, okay, how many shoe manufacturers are in Kenya? You can go into this platform at some point and find that information out. So when you think of a company like Asoko, your customers, again, are international companies that will pay you hard currency, um, hard currency revenues for your services. Your your operation, so the information is being gathered and the company is being profiled by African companies, but the business itself has very minimal exposure to some of the systematic risks that may happen in Kenya, for instance, because your entire base of customers is really anyone from anywhere in the world who's looking for information about Kenya. So if, if things went sideways in any aspect of sort of Kenya's superstructure, a company like Asoko would be affected because people maybe won't want to consume as much information about Kenyan companies, but the mm-hmm. company itself will not buckle because something went are already in a in this specific country. Now, not all companies are like that, but it's an aspect of how you think about designing a portfolio, right, with different mixes and types of risks, uh, whether around currency, business model, income stream, exposure to to, to uh, inflation, exposure to geopolitics, and so forth. And that's that's all aspect of how you think about designing and managing the portfolio of companies. Okay. Okay. So looking separately now at the technology and VC industries in Africa, what's sort of your vision for both spaces over the next decade or two? Are there maybe certain challenges you hope would have ebbed? What's your vision for these spaces going forward? Yeah, so I think from from 30,000 feet, it's fair to say we hope to see, you know, higher volume and density of players or different types of players, whether it's entrepreneurs, it's investors, um, it's advisors, it's, um, you know, name it, right? Government agencies that are set up to support this, um, international players coming in and so forth. But we, we think there'll be a lot, a lot of players and activity. Uh, I think that's honestly be one thing that we can say with a high level of certainty. Uh, but beyond that, there's one of my favorite quotes. I don't know who the original author is actually. It's been attributed to many different people, but it goes along the lines of, you know, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. And I think that's, that's an axiom that I generally tend to subscribe to. So I'm, I'm generally shy or reticent to, to make claims or, or sort mm-hmm. of bold assertions about where things may go. I, I can say, you know, we'll definitely see a lot more people coming into, to be part of the opportunity. But any new ones behind that is really hard to predict, you know, because predictions are difficult. Sure, sure. So talking about your journey, your career journey, when you think about the 
process. So sort of from earlier experiences to working at CRE, did you have a breaking point or a time when you maybe made a significant mistake or felt like you were failing at something, and how did you move forward from it? Uh, <laughs> well, I think if you, if you're not making mistakes or failing, you're playing it safe and you're not trying hard enough, right? I think if mm-hmm. if everything is going to plan and um, if everything is going to plan and you don't bang your head against the wall, if I, there's something wrong, right? I think you're you're not taking enough risk. You're staying where you're bound to hit the hundred points every day, and that's that's probably not very exciting. Since my freshman year at college at Princeton, I honestly cannot think of a six-month period in which I didn't feel like I'd failed at something <laughs> royally. <laughs> in which I didn't feel like, wow, that's really sobering. And, you know, in college, it was exams and all these, like, you know, all these crazy competitive things that people compete on in college. Then it was, it was job interviews, it's jobs that you really wanted but couldn't get or didn't get because of one reason or another. It's a work mm-hmm. assignment where you 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 know you 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 risk for the stars, you try to do your best and something goes sideways. It's a lot of things, right? I, I think my my worldview is we only ever learn through our failures and failure is not something to be afraid of, right? You will fail. Um, it's better to fail while doing something or trying to do something that's really meaningful. And also, um, as the saying goes, fail often, but fail fast, right? So nothing wrong with failing, but you have to fail fast. And the fast part is really important. I think people tend to blow that away and just say failure is fine. But the fast part is important, right? To me, it means that when you fail, you have to pick yourself up quickly, and move on to plan B or keep running, right? So you you cannot afford to fail and then just be comatose for the rest of the month. You know, the failure happens, you stop, you say, okay, what have I learned? And hopefully you have a plan B because you always need to have a plan B in case things don't go. Um, um, you, you need to have certain, con- certain contingencies of it where in place in case a particular effort or a particular initiative doesn't work out. Uh, I think there are different types of failure. There's like really catastrophic failure, which you generally should be able to avoid if you're paying attention to what you're doing, because you can see the writing on the wall from, you know, a hundred miles away. You can read, you can, you know, you can read the, the signs and see what people around you are saying, what people around you are doing. So I think you get better at adapting and not getting into like a catastrophic failure situation. But at the end of the day, I, I really, not to be cliche about it at all, I really think like failure is one way to learn. And I cannot think of like a six-month period since college where I didn't feel like I failed at something in a way that really sobered me and said, well, maybe that's not the path for you. Okay. Okay, and would you say your MBA has been useful to you on your entrepreneurship journey? So, in terms of starting CRE, uh, absolutely. So, I think there, there, are two, there are different answers to that, right? So, one is the MBA experience itself was very, very useful. Right, taking time from 
you know, living day to day and just chasing one deadline to another and having a two-year period in which I was able to pull up and think broadly about what my interests were and the direction that I wanted to to take my career. I had an opportunity to build relationships with different kinds of people. And I think for me, one of the biggest learnings from the MBA program was seeing the very many different types of backgrounds that my peers had, right? So I think before that, I mostly mm-hmm. worked at Bain & Company. Uh, that, that was the bulk of my experience before business school, right? So uh, I learned a lot from Bain, tremendous experience, but it is one worldview and one way of thinking about the world. Then you go to business mm-hmm. school and you have phenomenally talented people who some have come from the consulting world, um, some have come from the nonprofit world, right? Some worked for a congressman, some were a captain in the in the army, you know, some uh were community organizers, some um had done you know, we had been running companies, some had been running family businesses. So being able to see the different perspectives and the different models of success that people were coming from and that they were going into. I think was very eye-opening for me because it sort of said, wait a minute, the, there are no clear-cut rules of what works and what mm-hmm. doesn't. You sort of have to look at a situation and say, what am I uniquely positioned to do and tap into that. So I think that was probably the biggest takeaway from, from business school. Uh, and then, you know, subsequent to graduating, absolutely there were knowledge gaps that I had before going to business school. I think I learned a lot even just from the academic content itself that, you know, um, comfort around all sorts of different things, which if I had not gone to business school, probably would have taken a much longer period to learn opportunistically if and as I came into it. Um, there's been a tremendous benefit from the network. So people that I met in business school who have been instrumental in, in, in helping in setting up the fund, you know, people to call and say, hey, I'm faced with such, such a problem. Um, have you seen such a situation? Hey, I need someone mm-hmm. to talk to about it. Why Whom should I reach out to? Um, and even some who have come into the fund as my limited partners, right, friends from business school who say, look, we, you know, we trust, trust that you know what you're doing. We're going to support you. We're going to be among your investors and so forth. So I think, um, yes, business school was very much a blessing uh, on this path. Okay. And other question too. If you could give one piece of advice, maybe the most significant insight you've gotten since starting CRE or over the course of your career, if you could give one piece of advice to other entrepreneurs looking to start and grow business in Africa, what would it be? <laughs> the one advice question is always a tricky one. Um, <laughs> can I make it free or is it, does it have to be one? <laughs> Three works. <laughs> okay. I look, I think I think there are three things that I found to be very helpful. One is domain knowledge. So really master your domain, right? Do the best at whatever you do. You know, know whatever needs to be known, know the people that need to be known and so forth. Because um, that knowledge allows you to connect the dots and create value where other people may not see value. The second part is hustle, right? So... Um, I think I was a reasonably good student in school, and sometimes the, there's almost a liability to that, which is that you tend to trust the books a lot because you're good at it. 
yeah. and there are entrepreneurs I've seen out there or, or aspiring entrepreneurs who fall into that trap of saying, oh, you know, if I have a question, I'm just going to read about it. There's value in reading about it, but there's, I think, even more value in saying, let me find someone who is the expert in this. Let me find a way of connecting with them. And then let me not only ask them this question, but let me actually then build a relationship with them. Let me be someone who offers something them of value and, you know, give and take, right? Give something of value and get something of value from them. And that is more so hustle than um, something you'd find in the textbook. So I'd say the hustle is important, right? Being out there and connecting the dots and making things happen. Um, and then the third part that is, really should be the overarching thing is integrity, right? Really, at the end of the day, your entire value is the totality of your reputation. Like, what are you known for? Like, what what mm-hmm. you do? Like, when do you, being someone who stands for something, sometimes it can alienate people because you're not cool or whatever, but, um, you know, don't do something your mom would not be proud of, right? <laughs> <laughs> to do something that would not look good in the sun. And integrity is really important. We've, I mean, these days it's almost cliche, right, with the amount of leaks, the WikiLeaks and the Panama Papers and whatnot. <laughs> a yeah. lot of people that are in very high places who they have taken shortcuts or done things, um, fixing LIBOR in the banking system in London or, you know, doing this scandal or that scandal and that scandal, um, I think your integrity is really important. It takes a really, really long time to build it. Um, it takes a moment to put it to waste, and it's really hard to recover once it's gone. So I think just being upstanding and doing the right thing, it doesn't even have to be avoiding scandals, let's say, but I think just being someone, you know, a man or woman of their word, if you say something, do it, like treat people well, respect respect the entrepreneurs work with, respect people above you and respect people that may need something from you, just, you know, be someone of high integrity. I think those, for me, those three things is domain knowledge, hustle, and integrity. Okay, great. So, pardon, what matters most to you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think, I think feeling connected and relationships, right? People matter a lot, not only for, for business, we are in a people business, which helps in terms of reinforcing uh, the importance of relationships, but uh, personal relationships, high quality, uh, social, friend, family, whatnot relationships, I think are really important. I, I think we are designed to be connected to other people, to be social, um, and keeping those relationships with other people and certainly for me, with my faith as well, is, so that's really important. So the state of being connected. Okay. okay. And what's the most memorable book you have read? Give and Take, oh, Adam three. Grant. Yeah, Give and Take. Give and take. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a book by Adam Grant. Um, and he talks about um, the why it is better to be a giver than to be a taker. Um and, mm-hmm. you know, it goes into a fair amount of um, cases he studied and so forth, those situations where ultimately being a giver, not only are you happier, but 
um, the universe seems to conspire in your favor as a giver. It's almost a contemporary analysis and discussion of why it is more blessed to give than to take. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's by far my the success of red. Okay, very interesting. I'll oh. definitely look into it. Also, do you have a favorite African leader? So whether it's someone in the business space, in the political space, or in general, someone whose leadership style you admire? Uh, you know, I think I admire different people for different reasons. Um, and I, I don't mean to cop out of the question, but I think, you know, I would admire something that, you know, politician X has done because it, this specific thing because it represents something that I really like or what a business leader has done um, mm-hmm. for different reasons. I, I haven't found that I have, like, one go-to role model, per se, or one mm-hmm. go-to person who I say this, this person is categorically amazing, but it's like, okay, I like the way in which you know, Strive Masiori has built, built his company against all the odds when he founded it in Zimbabwe, Econet, um, mm-hmm. against a huge wall of resistance from, from, uh, from the government. I like the way in which, I like the way in which Pokagami has done a terrific job for Rwanda to get it to where it is, given where it started. I like mm-hmm. the way that um you know uh HBO in uh Belosage in Nigeria um built Etisalat and built other his other business concerns and the way in which he engages with younger people, younger entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and supports them as they build their companies. I like so you know I can go through like a list of different things that I like about different people, but I don't know that I would say what this one person per se is like mm-hmm. someone that is categorically my favorite, yeah. Okay, okay. And if you had to recommend someone for us to speak to next, who would it be? Uh, what are you looking for? <laughs> so we're looking for entrepreneurs that are currently working in Africa. Okay. Or supporting entrepreneurs in Africa like yourself. Okay. Uh, and are you looking for someone younger or someone older? Like, what's the bias? Doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Young and old me... is also relative, so. <laughs> but yes. Okay. Well, let me let me obviously I'll be biased and probably recommend someone that we have um, put capital behind. Um, <laughs> but you know, I would recommend. Let me think about who from our portfolio would be a good fit for, for what you're doing. And uh, maybe I'll shoot you an email after this to with, with a couple of thoughts. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. And that brings us to the end of the conversation. Pardon. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. This has been a very great conversation. So thanks for taking some time to speak with me. Thank you for making sure this happened. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Tomiwa, too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, that, right. that particular comment was addressed to Tomio. Tomio, are you still Maybe he's dropped off. Okay. Uh, no, thank, thank you. Thank you guys for inviting me to, to have this conversation. Um, it's, it, it's actually been very fun and exciting to step back and think about some of the issues that you asked. Of course. Of course. Thank you. And hope you enjoyed the rest of your weekend. 
All right. Take care. You enjoy it. All right. Bye. Bye.